0: If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 8, starting chapter 8 today. We've been in chapter 7 now for several weeks, and we completed that last week, and so now we will be entering into a new theme this morning you are visiting with us this morning, it is our common practice to preach through books of the Bible verse by verse, and so that's what we are doing here in the book of 1 Corinthians. We are uh, going verse by verse, and we find ourselves in chapter 8 starting this morning. The, ser- the sermon title this morning is, Knowledge Without Love is Dangerous, and our keywords for each, uh, kids in training uh, is, Idle, Knowledge, and Love. As I just said, we are starting a new section this morning, and um, if you remember, and the things that we've taught so far in this book, if you remember, the setting of this church was a very troubled church, a very uh, dysfunctional church, I guess if you could say it that way, uh, and so Paul, in many ways, is having to confront many issues that he's dealt that are, are plaguing this church, and through the first six chapters of this book. That's what Paul was primarily focused on. He was addressing several issues that had come to his attention, either through various reports or things that he found out firsthand. Uh, and he was addressing these things in the, uh, in, the, in the misapplication of Scripture that these people were being plagued by. And so then we got into chapter 7, and as we see in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, "...now concerning the matters about which you wrote..." And so now we're entering into the second part of this book, and we've started that in chapter seven where Paul is beginning to address several questions that, that uh the people have put towards him. They're looking for advice. Now, before he was having to straighten out things that they weren't really probably wanting him to do, but nonetheless he had to do that, and so now he's addressing issues specifically in the church that they were plagued by, questions that they had. Uh, Several questions. So the first question we saw that we, we spent the last four or five uh, sermons on in chapter 7 was on marriage, on, on many aspects of marriage, on sexual relationship within marriage, on uh, singleness and divorce and all these things that pertain to marriage. And so we, that was the first question that Paul set out to address. And so now, as we come to chapter 8, we see a change in theme because now he says, now concerning, this is chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning food, offered to idols so now we see a shift now we see paul is picking up the next question that they had addressed and so it has to do uh, with food being offered to idols and really and truly he's going to be dealing with this issue all the way through the next three chapters in chapter 8 all the way through chapter 9 and then through the end of chapter 10 and the first verse of chapter 11 he's going to be addressing this issue of food sacrificed to idols and the confusion that surrounded it And so in this large section running through those three chapters, it would seem to be the case that the particular issue that the Corinthians have asked about is the whole matter of how they as Christians should think about things like pagan temples and even more specifically the sacrifice meat that was associated with the worship that went on in these temples. That was the specific situation that gave rise to Paul's addressing this question in chapter 8 verse 1 and following. So before we get into the verse, I want to give a a, a lengthy introduction because this is going to set the stage for the next several weeks as we go through these three chapters. And so part of making sense of these verses involves remembering the nature of the relationship between Paul and the Corinthian congregation. In short, it was a mixed bag, so to speak. On the one hand, this is a church that was started by Paul and so has some natural loyalty to him. Some of them had a natural loyalty to him. At the same time, it is a church into which many false teachers have come and which as a result have begun to drift from the founding pastor a little bit. There were some of them who were were really a thorn in Paul's side and who had really abandoned many of the things uh, that he had taught them. Further from the tone which Paul takes with them here, it would seem likely that the issue being addressed in this text is one which Paul had really already addressed before. And whereas they might have been more willing to listen to Paul earlier, now there seems to be some growing reluctance to do that. And along with that, a growing tendency to think independently of Paul. And really and truly, this issue not only had been addressed by Paul, but it had been addressed earlier in the very early days of the life of the church. In Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem Council, if you remember in the history of the church, uh, the, the gen- there was a, a great confusion and just and problem between Jews and Gentiles in the early church. And so many of the Jewish people were wanting the Gentiles to be circumcised and to follow some of the law. And so they were causing great distress to the new Gentile converts. And so the, the church uh, put together this council. And so we see in, in Acts 15, they they came together and they said, no, that's not, you can't put that... Uh, requirement on these Gentile converts. That's not what saves them. That's not what they're, uh, they need to be about. But they also put some stipulations about what these Gentile converts should be doing in their practice in the church. And one of the things that they said is that they should be, they, they should not, they should stay away from food sacrificed to idols. They specifically said that along with a couple of other things. So this is something that has been addressed. Earlier in the life of the church, either here by Paul or specifically earlier in the uh, in the days of the church through the Jerusalem Council to which this church would have known about. And so you also may remember that how earlier in 1 Corinthians we discovered one of the big problems in Corinth was this crazy idea that they had finally or had fully arrived spiritually, that the fullness of what God was doing in them was theirs right now, that they were there. They had, they had acquired everything that they needed from God. And as such, they were behaving at times as if they were a law unto themselves, and some evidently regarded themselves as more spiritually mature even than Paul himself. And so that mentality which appeared earlier in this letter makes another appearance here in chapter 8. With this current issue, some of the Corinthians, because they feel they have arrived and do no better than Paul, they think they are free to reject Paul's question of temples and meat sacrifice to idols. The Corinthians feel like they have a knowledge as well as Paul and feel that this alone is all they need to validate their decisions and their actions. Now Paul is going to challenge them on this in the opening verses of chapter 8, but for now... I simply want you to keep in mind that this fundamental and ongoing conflict between the Corinthian church and their founding apostle is very real. Another reality that you have to keep in mind is what, the, what things were like in the city of Corinth of that day. As we have already seen, this was a city that had plenty of temples in it and pagan religions. Virtually on every street corner there was a temple to some god. And so there was much religious uh, fervor going on in this, in this city. Typically, when one one went into one of these temples, there would have been any number of ceremonies where sacrificed meat was provided to one of the temple's worshipers and sacrificed by one of the temple priests himself, who then kept a portion of the meat for themselves, but made, other portion, made the other portions available for other users. And so what, what would happen is they would come in and they would bring uh, whatever was required, whatever animal was required, probably a lamb, and so they would... They would uh, dissect the animal. Part of the animal would be placed on the altar uh, to be burnt on the altar, just as the Jewish uh, believers did early in the, in the Old Testament. And then part of it would be given to the priest and part of it would be consumed right there on the spot uh, by the person who is bringing the offering. And so uh, sometimes this meat was used part as a festival or feast. Sometimes some of the meat was sold to people who came along to have dinner at the temple, very much like people do today in restaurants. The, 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 you have to imagine that these temples were the activity place of the city. This is where all the, the social things happened. And so uh, there was so much sacrifice going on that it was more than the priest could handle. And so he couldn't consume it all himself. So he would he would, uh, put, uh, allow some of it to go into the marketplace to be sold. And some of it would be, be provided in these temples for festive organ uh, 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 activities and parties and dinners. And it was really like a restaurant of our day. And so the Corinthian people would have grown up in this environment and would, by the time they were adults, attended dozens and dozens of feasts, festivals, and rituals, sacrifices in the various temples in the city. Many of these, these people would have been engrossed in that. They would have, that would have been a part of their culture. It was the thing to do. It was what everyone did. It would have been considered odd and unsociable not to take part in these gatherings, So if you looked on a typical well-to-do family calendar back in those days, it might look something like this. Tuesday, we're going to go to the Temple of Aphrodite with Bob and Jane and family for sacrifice and dinner afterwards. Friday, big festival at the Shrine of Neptune. Everyone will be there. Tomorrow, stop by Apollo's Temple Market, two-for-one sale on lamb chops. And so I'm using some license and liberty there, but you get the idea of what life was like in Corinth. Temple and sacrifice and participation in pagan rituals was just a part of life. And it would have been normal, ordinary practice for the Corinthian people up until the time of Paul's arrival and their subsequent conversion to, to be sure it was more frequently a part of life for some than others, but it was never very far away from any of them. And then... All of a sudden, this thing that was as normal as breathing was a big question mark. So you see the problem that this brings into the picture. This part of their culture, which was very much ingrained in them, that probably every one of them had been actively participating in for many, many years, now all of a sudden they're wondering, can I continue in this endeavor? Can I continue to do this? But the activity in the temple was not just a part of the family social fabric in varying degrees. It was also a part of the business and commercial fabric of the society as well. In short, taking part in the various things on offer in the different temples would have been one of primary means of networking in that day. If you were a business person, just as in our own day, uh, where being in the right place at the right time and mixing with certain people can, can drastically affect your business to the positive. Being at various temple events was a way to meet potential clients, and nurture relationships that might become business opportunities down the road, at least for some. And so all of this, which brings up another important bit of background information, which, was, which should inform our reading of this particular part of our letter in general. And this passage in particular, the very real presence of a socioeconomic class distinction in the Corinthian society. It's evident from the things that Paul says in the places in in this book, such as in verse chapter 1, verse 26, that the majority of the people in the Corinthian congregation were not among the powerful and the well-to-do of that culture. They would not have been the in crowd. Nevertheless, it's also clear from what he says in other places, such as the passage before us now, that there was a certain component of the Corinthian congregation that was pretty well well well-off. We know this because meat was much more expensive and a lot harder to come by in that day and age, so much so that the average wage earner did not have it as a normal part of his or her diet. It would not have been a part of their diet. It would have been part of special occasions to where they would have been maybe invited to a specific festival or, or a sacrifice or something going on. They would have been invited, but it was not something that, we can, that we could, you could just go every day and, and pick up because it was so expensive. And so most of the people would have to live mostly on vegetables. So there was a socioeconomic disparity going on here. There was some well-to-do people, rich people in this church, and there was also some not-so-well-to-do. And as a result, those who would be in the position of attending temples and purchasing meat or acquiring it from the local marketplace on a regular basis were generally people of some means. The fact that Paul takes time to address this at some length in his letter must mean that there was great disparity and so and so that in and of itself brings division, brings uncertainty, and brings problems. And so and so for Paul to address this issue of temples and rituals and meat used in pagan sacrifices was a very big deal. This is not I mean it's hard is it not hard to put your mind around this? Because we don't have this. We don't have a problem here. We don't have a problem with what we eat. But in this day, you have to to pull yourself out of the 21st century and step back into the 1st century in Corinth and realize what was going on here and why this was such a big deal. It was something that could affect the Corinthian congregation in all sorts of ways, socially, interpersonally, and even professionally. And even though we have no direct parallels of this in our own situation, we have to see that it was very important. And we have things that we can gather from the teaching that we will bring forth as we go through this passage. And so with all that in mind, let's take the time that remains to think about the opening. We're going to look at the opening six verses this morning, and then we'll look at the last uh, seven verses of chapter 8 next week uh, as we go through this chapter. So I'm going to to actually read through the whole chapter of chapter 8, and then we're going to come back and look at the first six verses uh, today. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat or no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And so as we come back to uh, the first six verses this morning, I wanna, we're going to see three points that I'm going to cover this morning. I'm not going to lay them all out for you yet. I'll just bring them up to you as we go to them. But the first thing we're going to see, we're going to look at the verse two cha- first two verses of chapter 8, is that knowledge alone is insufficient because Paul says now concerning food offered to idols we know that all of us possess knowledge this knowledge puffs up but love builds up if anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know and so Paul here is saying if you if you have the ESV bible you'll notice that the the phrase all of us possess knowledge is in quotation marks and so what most scholars are pretty much unanimous in agreement on is that this was Paul was actually Uh, uh, quoting something that they had said in their own writing to him and, and as they were trying to figure out this issue. This is something that was commonly said amongst the Corinthian people, some of them, was that all of us possess knowledge. We all understand knowledge. Paul is quoting the Corinthians. And many in the Corinthian church were proud of what they knew, as we saw earlier, and many of them were acting as if they had arrived. And but, but, one thing we want we want to be clear of, Paul is not saying that knowledge is bad in and of itself, completely bad, because after all, in second corinthians four six he says, "For God who said, let, shine, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul also says in the book of Ephesians chapter one, verse seventeen that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory." may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him and if you've read the book of Romans you understand that Paul was a theologian if he was nothing else he was a theologian he he believed in in truth and he and he in and as we see in these two verses and many other that Paul did not disparage knowledge completely and so what does he mean here Uh, Why is he bringing this up? Because he says, as they are quoting, that we all possess knowledge. Paul says this knowledge puffs up. This knowledge puffs up. What does he mean by that? Well, that's a familiar word we've heard before in 1 Corinthians. It means to be filled with air, to swell up like a balloon, to be proud, to be arrogant. It means to be, yeah, I'm there, I know what I'm talking about. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up, there's that word, in favor of, of one against another. You know how they were they were drawing lines and they were they were they were getting in this camp and that camp and they were boasting about their individual camps and so Paul is saying uh, that he wrote those things about how that he and Apollos were nothing. He wrote that because he did not want people to be puffed up with pride in their understandings, in their wherever they may be. He also said in verses eighteen and nineteen of chapter four, he says, Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. That's that same word, puffed up, arrogant. And so there was much arrogance going on here. And so Paul is saying that over this issue of food sacrifice to idols, over this whole issue that we're going to be really dissecting over the next three chapters, let me first start off, and it almost looks like he's digressing from the issue at hand. He, he, he starts off, okay, I'm going to answer your question about food sacrificed to idols, but I'm not going to get to it yet, because he doesn't get to it till verse 4. He says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols. But he, but he doesn't go straight to it. He has to get to the issue. Like a good pastor, he has to go down to the heart of the problem. And the heart of the problem is their arrogance, is their puffed-up arrogance about the knowledge that they have acclaimed and acquired. And so what he's saying necessarily is knowledge in and of itself is not bad, it's what you do with it. What do you do with this knowledge? And so these Corinthians have a, have in their own estimation acquired knowledge about what they can and cannot do in the life of in their individual lives and so they're doing it completely disregarding all around them. And so Paul is saying Yes, I understand that all of us have knowledge. And he's going to go on in a minute and say, yes, we do. And there's a reason why we should have that. But first he has to get to the heart of the issue of what these people were doing with their knowledge. They were becoming arrogantly proud about it. And so he says, this type of knowledge, knowledge again in quotation, this knowledge that you say you possess, it does not build, it, does, it puffs you up. It does not build up. What is the, what is the duty of the Christian?" to be all about ourselves, to be all about our own personal growth and our own personal advancement. Is that what makes us godly? Is that what is that what appeals to us from God, from the scriptures? No, it's absolutely not. We have many admonitions from scripture that we are to be serving one another, to be building one another up. Those the church is, is described as a building, as a as as a uh, as a household of God, a building that we are all a, have a, a part in. We're all a part of the building. We all serve different aspects of that building, and we're there to build each other up in love. And so Paul is saying, this knowledge that you claim to possess, it's not a, it's not accomplishing this goal that I have set forth for you. It's causing you to become arrogant and proud and to do things that are not loving to others. And so it's not building people up. And so Paul first begins to address the heart issue of what they're doing with their knowledge. He says, it's, you're applying it wrong. And then he goes on to go even deeper with them because in verse 2 he says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. There's Paul deflating that, that, that balloon. He just took his pen and popped that balloon and let all that hot air out. You think you know it all. You think you've arrived. You do not yet know as you ought to know. When we think that we have arrived in our knowledge, we're only manifesting our utter ignorance. When we think that we have acquired everything that we need or that we are at some elevated place in our understanding of God, we are only manifesting our ignorance. The more you study the Word of God, I mean, this has to be true for you. It's it's, it's true for me. The more you study the Word of God, the more you realize how little you actually know. You know, I remember when I was first saved and I was just just consuming the Word of God like a sponge. You remember that? Some of you have been walking with the Lord for a long time. You remember how you were just consuming it. Like you just couldn't get enough. And you were like, man, I better slow down. I might get it all figured out, you know, in the next year or two. But the more you go and the more you go and the deeper you go with God and the more He He opens it up to you, you realize how, how arrogant, how ignorant I was. And how people... I mean even pastors who've been walking with the Lord and serving the Lord for 50 years they still hunger for the word of God because it's it's new to them every day. It's refreshing. It builds our souls every day and so we always come with an understanding of humility that this word is alive. And that the 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 the, the, the even though that God does not bring fresh new revelation to us, this revelation that he has brought to us is becoming new to us every day as we read it, as it transforms us, as we become to understand it and the way we apply it every day. And so Paul is coming to bear with them. He's, he's hitting them right between the eyes and saying, you think you know it all. You think you're living as if you have arrived and you have this knowledge that should, people should just line it behind you and follow you because you've got it all figured out. He's saying, you're arrogant. You're out of step. You're not building up. You're tearing down. And so the first point there that Paul is addressing is that love it alone is insufficient. The second point we'll look at today is in verse 3. As knowledge is insufficient, love should be the proper basis. Because he says in verse 3, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Here, love and knowledge are put together again here in verse 3, but it's put together in a different way. The arrogant Corinthians were thinking that knowing about God meant that they loved God. That's what they had in their mind, that if I just know what the truth is, and I just and that's all I need to do. I need to, I need to know the truth. And as I grow and understand and, and learn more and more the truth, that means I'm loving God. But he turns it around on them. He says, If anyone loves God, he is known by God. There's that love and known together. But who is the who is the instigator here? It's God. God is the one. If you, if you love God, He is known by God. Now, it will help for us to bring in a few uh, scriptures outside of 1 Corinthians. Galatians 4 9 says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So Paul there telling the Galatians, he's saying, But now that you have come to know God, but wait a minute! Before you get too arrogant, or rather, be known by God. He's the instigator. He's the one who started the, you down the path of knowing Him because He knew you first. First John will clear it up even more uh, clearer for us. First John chapter four, verse six uh, through verse twenty-one. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Down to verse 19. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So when you put all that together, do you see the clear picture that the Scriptures are laying out for us? That whenever we walk in this realm of love, whether we claim to be walking in it or not, it has to be upon the foundation of God's love for us and His knowledge of us and Him knowing us. You remember Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, many will come to me at the end end of time to say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name, perform many miracles? And what did Jesus say to them? Depart from me, for I never knew you. He is the omniscient Lord. He knows every person who ever lives. When he says, I never knew you, he's saying, I never knew you in a loving, redemptive relationship. You are not one of my children. And so here, clearly, Paul is laying out a theology for us that says, "But if anyone loves God, he is known by God." That's where love, the fountain of love, begins with God. And as John is clearly saying us that we love because he first loved us. But he's also very clearly pointing out to us that we cannot say that we love God and hate our brother at the same time. And so that's what these people. Why is why is Paul bringing this? this point to them because they were living in a very unloving way to their brothers. Some of these Corinthians in their arrogance were participating in activities that were causing others to stumble and struggle. And we're going to get into that in more detail next week. What specifically was going on. But nonetheless, Paul is confronting him in these early parts of this chapter with this idea of loving sacrifice to others. Putting others above yourself. Building others up rather than... Uh, exalting yourself in your own rights and your own abilities and your own desires. But the clear thing that Paul is laying out for us is that God is the initiator of love and knowledge because knowledge cannot come unless it comes through love. And that's what, that's where these people were messed up. They were exalting knowledge. There was, a, there was a, uh, some form of Gnosticism going on here. We've talked about that, this knowledge that was divorced from anything spiritual, uh, anything uh, temporal or anything. That, they, that All you needed to do was to know things, and that, that was bringing you closer and closer to God as you acquired more and more knowledge. And so Paul has spent much of his writing in 1 Corinthians and Galatians destroying that notion that knowledge in and of itself, divorced from love, is an abomination. It does not build up. It does not accomplish what God would have it to accomplish. John MacArthur, in uh, commenting on these verses, says, The truly well-rounded Christian thinks and acts in two ways, conceptually and relationally. He has the ability to understand biblical truths and the ability to relate them to people, to himself and to others. He has, the, he has knowledge plus love because love is the medium through which truth is to be communicated. Uh, quoting Ephesians 4.15, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. Knowledge by itself brings arrogance, not maturity. End quote. And so do you see what he's saying. It's not just that we live our lives in this world as if we're trying to attain, to gain more understanding of the Word of God, and we just flippantly go out and live it without any understanding of how we're living in it around the people around us because people have differing ideas of what the Scriptures mean, but also how to apply the Scriptures in various issues of life. And so what MacArthur is is saying is that Christian must think in two ways. Conceptually, concepts, truths that I am gaining through my biblical worldview, through the study of the Scriptures, by by studying and, and applying the Scriptures, I am gaining concepts from the Word of God about how to make decisions and how to live my life. And so that's one way I act, but I also must realize that I'm doing that alongside a brother who's attempting to do the same thing. And how often do we all do it exactly the same way? Very little. It it happens very little. There is always disagreement on various topics. It's hard enough just agreeing on on the doctrines of the Word of God and those things that we cannot compromise on. But there are so many things in life, and this is specifically... One of the issues that we're looking at here, an issue that is kind of gray in the scriptures. It's not really black and white. There's not really "thus saith the Lord, yes or no" here, and so there may be some disagreement over how to apply and live out that scripture. And so you're going to have people who do things a little differently, as was happening here. And so the the problem that comes into that is that how do we how do we come to a, a an agreement on how to live together in that disagreement? It's difficult right It's hard because we want to be and we want to be right. we want to be the one who's right, right right And so we have to understand that life is, that the Christian life is not just about acquiring knowledge, it's about acquiring knowledge and living relationally with one another, loving one another. That's the central theme here of this whole text and I can't wait till we get to chapter 13 you know, of, of this book, whenever we start dissecting love itself and looking at that very closely on what that means to live in love with one another. And I want to read one of the, just a couple of verses from chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. When he talks about love, he says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. That's a mouthful in just those two verses, and there's 13 verses in that chapter that we're going to look at. But that's where that's where that's the foundation that we must operate off of as God's people is in love with one another, loving one another, serving one another. And so Paul is telling us in this first part of this chapter that love alone is insufficient. Love. I mean, knowledge alone is insufficient. Love is really the true proper basis that, we should, be, that should be, we should be operating on. But just so that we don't get the wrong idea, verses 4 through 6, our third point is that knowledge is necessary. Verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called, so-called gods in heaven, or on earth as indeed there are many gods and many lords yet for us there is one god the father from whom are all things and and for whom we exist and one lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist and so Paul is going to set it right, set it up here to say that okay knowledge is knowledge applied wrong applied arrogantly is wrong that's what he was saying in the first part but he's saying here i don't disagree with what you're saying the things that, you were, that you were, you've that you you come to understand about the Scriptures are true. Because they, that was their quote. All of us possess knowledge. This knowledge, If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know. But then he goes on to say, Therefore, as to the eating of food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. An idol is nothing because only one God exists. And that's really what was happening. Because what was going on is there were people... Who, because as we talked about, it was part of the culture, it was part of your upbringing that you would have seen or participated a lot in your life in these sacrificial things going on in these temples. And so many people after they had become converted to Christ were beginning to struggle with that because after all, and, and Paul lays it out very clearly in chapter 10, it was false worship. It was idol worship. It's idolatry. It is sinful. It is wrong in and of itself. Worshiping false gods is wrong. And so many people begin to build convictions about that, and they're saying, I can't do that anymore. I can't participate in that anymore. But do you realize the tension that immediately brings? We no doubt maybe have experienced ourselves as we're converted to Christ and we're, we're involved with things in our life and our past that we're not, a, we're not proud of, but nonetheless we built relationships and friendships through that time. And now all of a sudden we're convicted about, oh no... I don't want to participate in the same way that I used to participate with this person or that person or that activity. So what do I do? How do I walk that line? And so they're struggling with this. And so Paul is saying here, that because some of these people were saying, look, I know that idols are not real. There is only one God. He's laying that out here in these three verses here in verses 4 through 6. There is only one God. These idols that they worship, they're nothing there's nothing to them. It's just false worship. Because they understand that, that only one God exists. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is the only true God. And then I want to turn back also and look at, look at what some of the um, Old Testament writers would say about false worship. Let's look at it real quick. Hold your finger there and go back to Psalm 115. Because, after all, remember, Paul is agreeing with them that, yes, there are only one God. There is only one God. These idols do not represent another God. Psalm 115, verses 1 through 9, he says, "...not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory for the sake of Your steadfast love and Your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases." Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. So he's laying out to them what is, what's they're actually involved in making an idol. What is it really about? What is it? Does it, is it, is it really represent a God? No. Let's look, flip over a little bit further to Isaiah. Chapter 44. <coughs> and really, Isaiah does not hold any punches back when he's talking about idol worship. You know, in our day, we want to we want to tiptoe through not wanting to offend anybody in their false worship. But Isaiah the prophet was not that type of person. Let's read chapter 44. This is kind of lengthy, but it's real important to see how the writers of Scripture, uh, how these people gain this understanding uh, of, of idol worship. In verse, uh, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Listen to this. All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know they, that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak tree. And lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, also I baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten." And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? So you see, Isaiah is not pulling any punches, and he's saying, I, idol worship, idol making idols and bowing down before them and sacrifice them is quite foolish. It's really foolish. Here's a guy who's cutting down a tree and half of it he puts in the fire to cook and the other half he shapes into an idol and bows down and worships it. And so he's saying, do you not see the, the, the ludicrousness of that? It's foolish, it's folly, but they cannot see otherwise because they're deluded. And so Paul is saying here, yes, and go back, going back to chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, he's saying we know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. There is only one true God. All these people who bow down and worship these false idols, they are very fervent and very, uh, very diligent about it, but it's nothing to it. And so I agree with you there, he says. And also in verse 5, he says, For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. He's just, he's just saying the obvious. Yeah, there are many little gods, little lords out there. Many false gods that people bow down and worship to. But he says in verse 6, yet, there, yet for us, for us, the Christian, there is only one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. There you see the doctrine of the Trinity. Only two of them mentioned, but nonetheless, God the Father and God the Son as one God into subsistences. Three, when you bring in the Holy Spirit. And so he's saying that God the Father is the source of all things. It's from God that we exist. From God all of creation was created, and from God we exist. And unto him we live. We live unto him with purpose. <laughs> but also, along with that, there is one Lord. And it's because it says, through Jesus Christ, that we that that all things exist and through whom we exist. And we see that very clearly laid out in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And so we see the deity of Christ being laid out there, that through Christ, God the Father has created the universe and redeemed us. And So we see the doctrine of the Trinity being laid out there by Paul to say that, yes, you are correct in your understanding that idols are nothing, And that as we'll get into next week, as it pertains to the food that we eat, whether or not they've been sacrificed to these idols, they cannot have been tainted in any way because it really is a nothing that they're being sacrificed to. But it's not that simple. It's not that simple as we will see. And so the issue in conclusion is that we're going to be looking over the next few weeks... Over this, about this issue of liberty. Many of you have no doubt heard the term Christian liberty. And this is only one portion of the New Testament that deals with that issue. And, we, and, and to really get a good grasp of it, you'll have to read other parts of Scripture because I don't want to go beyond what 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 are actually saying. But the one thing that we're going to be clearly looking at and seeing here is that knowledge divorced from love is dangerous. It's dangerous to us. It's dangerous to others. If we go around living our lives with this understanding of what we perceive to be, what we can and can't do, what our rights are, completely disregarding those around us, then we, have, we are not living in a loving manner. We are not living with the right knowledge. Because knowledge cannot be divorced from love. And so, a couple of points in conclusion. As those who find ourselves in a church that has a strong tr- teaching tradition which is all fine and good and needed, we especially need to pay attention to Paul's words to the Corinthians here. As important as truth and knowledge is, and these things are deeply significant, but at the end of the day, they are meaningless if you don't actually love people and if they do not lead you to loving action. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 and 2 says it very clear, plain. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, and, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Don't you love it when your kids have toy drums and they go around beating that cymbal? That's what, that's, that's what that noise is. It drives you crazy. It's useless. It's a clanging cymbal. And he says, If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. That's a very important truth about love that we cannot forget, especially those of us who, who understand the Scriptures, who, who, who like to study the Scriptures. We must realize that knowledge divorced from love will create us and make us into noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. And ultimately, we will be Nothing. Second point, as it was true for the Corinthians, so it will be true for you and me today, and we'll see this more next week, but it's not enough for you to ask, what does the Bible say about this issue? It's not enough to just say that. What does the Bible say about this issue? And then feel that because you have considered the biblical data on a subject, you have now done all the considering you need to do in order to know how you ought to respond in any given situation. What I'm saying to you is that's not enough because if you read the Bible carefully, including passages like this one, you will see that you must not only ask what you can know about a certain issue, but you must also ask what would love do in response to this issue? What would a loving application of this knowledge look like? Is my response in this situation going to build up? Is it seeking the good of the body or is it going to simply stroke my ego, protect my rights? And promote my own interest, which does not build up. Because after all, if we all got our interest and our rights accomplished, then well that's impossible, right? We would not be, we can't we can't be together. You'd have to be by yourself. Peter says in first Peter two sixteen live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. We are free, people. We're free. The gospel has set us free. It's freed us from the bondage of sin, but yet that is not, it. That is not the end of the matter. We cannot live in, as, in a manner that, do, that does not serve others. And then finally, and notice in all this how the gospel is central. The gospel is central. Paul's emphasis here on being known by God is a crucial point of application Because being satisfied with and in God are the keys to addressing the matters that arise in our day-to-day life. Matters which often reveal our essential idolatries. We get frustrated and angry over things that happen or don't because behind those events is often some idol. Control, power, image, money that we are bowing down to. But the person who places a premium on knowing and being known by God is freer from the and enslavements that complicate our day-to-day affairs. The person who places a premium on knowing and being known by God is less inclined to insist on his own rights and personal prerogatives. That person is therefore freer to let go of non-essentials because the most essential thing is already his. In other words, the person is not in bondage to his own freedom, which is the most insidious bondage of all. Do you realize that your own freedoms can become an idol? Our own freedoms can become... We can, we can, we can place ourselves right back under where God has redeemed us from. With our own understanding and our own knowledge, we can do that. We can create, as John, as John Calvin said, our hearts or a 24-7 idle factory. It does not rest. It does not take holidays. It, cons- it constantly insists for its own. It constantly desires its own to be fed. And so we have to realize that God has set us free. But we can't just walk through life living in that freedom completely ignorant of those around us because that's not love. The Gospel tells us in Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Stand firm in that understanding that, that, that freedom Christ has set us free. The Gospel sets us free. Stand firm, but and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't place yourselves back under a yoke of slavery. But then he also goes on to say a few verses later, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity of the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's it. That's why we're here. We're not here to serve our own fleshly desires. Even though those desires may be good desires. They may be desires that we are perfectly free to to be a part of and to be involved in. But if that's what rules us, if we ignore those around us, then we are not walking in love, we're walking in the flesh. And so as we go through this, these next few chapters, as we're thinking about these issues that are seemingly black, not, not black and white, but in those gray areas, and this was a gray area, the foundation that we stand on is the Gospel. But it's the Gospel being acted out in love. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you love them more than you love your own desires and rights? Ask yourself that this week. The things that you like, the things that you do in your life, if you had to give them up, would you? Because that's what Paul is going to be asking these people. Are you willing to give them up for the sake of a brother or sister in Christ? Because as he says in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 8, he says in the first part that we've been talking about, all of us possess knowledge. We all know, we all, you know, you say you have knowledge. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. So you see, it's not simply cut and dry. Doing things that you feel like you're free to do is not always black and white, yeah, I can do it, and God's pleased. It's not that simple. We have to walk in love, and love is a messy business. Can we not attest to that? That living in love with one another is a messy business? You get your hands dirty. You have to give up things you don't want to give up. Do things you don't really feel like doing. But walking in love and serving others above ourselves, that is the gospel. That's the gospel. So may God bless us to be able to be a people of love and a people who serve one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for the richness of Your Word. We thank You, God, for the knowledge that You have given us from Your Word. And we pray, God, that we would never be a people that was puffed up with pride and arrogance people who exalt themselves in what we know and forget, Lord, that we are here to love others. And we know, Lord, that we are able to love others because you have loved us. And it is completely inconsistent, Father, for us to say that we love you and not love others. Give us the grace, God. Give us, give us your merciful grace to be able to deny ourselves and to love others. And we love you and we thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.